0: I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, and we'll read verse 18 to verse 27. Luke chapter 9, verse 18 to 27, but we'll be covering chapter 9, verse 1, up to verse 50. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And they answered, And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. But who do you say that I am? Jesus' question to the disciples confronts not just the disciples, but all of us. And our response distinguishes and defines us. In fact, it determines our eternal destiny. Now, the question that Jesus poses is the climax of the first movement of Luke's symphony of salvation. We've had the birth narratives of Luke in chapter 1 and chapter 2. They serve as the overture to the symphony, or um, in modern terms, the origin story of Jesus of Nazareth. And then in chapters 3 to chapter 9... Luke describes the work and teaching of Jesus in order to raise the question, who is this man? Here in chapter 9, Jesus himself sets up the climactic question, who do you say that I am? As he sends out his 12 disciples, or his 12 apostles. He sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal up to this point, the disciples had traveled with Jesus, they've observed him at work, and now he is giving them the chance to follow in his footsteps. He, he had called them initially in chapter 5, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so he is fulfilling that promise and he sends them out to rely completely on God's provision. Not just for the work that Jesus gave them, but also for their daily needs, so that they may experience His abundant sufficiency. Notice what He does, Luke chapter 9, and verse 3. And He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics, no change of underclothes. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. Depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. They are to go by faith, relying on God's provision. And they find that God is faithful, but God's faithfulness does not guarantee that people would accept the message. And that's why Jesus instructs them wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. The witness to their rejection also serves as a warning of impending judgment. It is a call to repentance. And according to Luke, in verse 6, they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. They proclaim by word and deed the good news of the kingdom of God. And we realize that the healings and exorcisms, Thomas Schreiner points out, are signs of the presence of the kingdom. They testify that the new creation has dawned. They anticipate a new world in which there is no disease nor oppression from demons. But we will find that as the disciples bring this good news to the villages in Galilee, News of Jesus' ministry reaches Herod the Tetrarch in verse 8 and 9. And Herod asks the question, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And the very form of the question casts a rather sinister shadow on what is about to come. So you see the the apostles return, they give the report in verse 10, and Jesus decides to take them for a debrief away to Bethsaida, except for one problem, the crowds would not let them get away. They follow, and here we see the heart of Jesus. Instead of being miffed at the intrusion of the crowds, verse 11, Jesus graciously welcomed them. And spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now in contrast to Jesus, the disciples didn't quite share Jesus' heart. It's getting late. And so they tell Jesus in verse 12, Jesus, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. I don't want to take responsibility for all these people. But Jesus, just as he often does, throws them a curveball. Verse 13 I'm not sending them away. You give them something to eat. They had experienced hospitality during their preaching tour. It's your turn to exercise hospitality, boys. <laughs> Except the disciples were more focused on the problem than on God's ability to provide. They, they respond in verse 13. Jesus, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. Which meant that they were neither willing nor able to buy food because there were probably about ten to 12,000 men, women, and children. There were 5,000 men to feed at the end of the day. And if you look at the congregation right now, there's probably more women than men, right? So let's say about 12,000 men, women, and children. And as far as they were concerned, we can't do this. It's up to Jesus. And so he asked the people sit, or perhaps better, recline in groups of 50. And then look at verse 16 and 17 taking the five loaves and the two fish, and mind you, those loaves would have been about this size. Okay? And the two fish would not have been this big, but this big. Not those fish that you claim to catch. (laughs) But the ones that you really catch. (laughs) We know what you're saying. (laughs) He looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. It's a demonstration of God's infinite ability to provide for his people. And this is an instance of Jesus teaching his disciples, you and me, To rely on him rather than on our abilities and resources. We're giving out the tax receipts today. And I'll remind you of what what we said at the members meeting. It seemed, we started the year saying we need 11%. And God basically laughed and said, that's all you want? (laughs) And God gave us far more than we had expected. And this is exactly what went on. In the feeding of these 10, 12,000 people, Jesus was telling them, I've got this. You don't need to worry. I can provide far more than you need. And in doing that, it shows Jesus to be greater than Elisha and Moses. See, Elisha and Moses had also fed multitudes, but it was very clear that God was the one acting. Psalm 78 would would speak of the feeding of the people in the wilderness. It was very clear that it was God providing. But here in the text, in Luke chapter 9, you notice verse 17, it is Jesus who is acting. It is Jesus who is satisfying the people. But more than that, One of the interesting things about this miracle is that the feeding of the 5,000 men is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels along with Jesus' resurrection. Because it symbolizes or portrays the hope of the Gospel. David Garland says, since Jesus makes them all recline, reclining is the position that you take when you're at a banquet. If you recall from last week. This is a banquet that is being served. And this miracle then is one of super abundant table fellowship. Which is symbolic of the joy of God's uncalculating forgiveness. Because people sat together in fifties. All social distinctions were erased. And they were all eating the same food. They were all being served by the same people. And it was a pointer to the eschatological messianic banquet. Jesus, as Messiah, is feeding the people. It is a banquet with food overflowing. And in a culture where food was scarce, this was an amazing display of greatness. His disciples could not have missed the implications. And that's why they are now ready to answer the question that Jesus poses. But who do you say I am? And Peter, being Peter, speaks for the group when he says, the Christ of God. They recognize that Jesus is God's anointed one. His promised Messiah, the King who would redeem His people. And at that point, having given the right answer, you'd expect that Jesus would commend them, right? Except look at verse 21. Much to their surprise and ours, Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. See, they were right that Jesus is the Messiah, but they had the wrong kind of Messiah in their mind. They had a wrong definition of Messiah. See, for them, Messiah would be mighty and wise in the Holy Spirit, endowed with miraculous powers, holy and free from sin, the final anointed one, and the true king of Israel, who would destroy God's enemies by the word of his mouth he would deliver jerusalem from the gentiles gather the faithful from dispersion and rule in justice and glory except that wasn't what jesus had come to do was it jesus would be more than a political messiah he would be the suffering messiah that's the point of reading isaiah 52:13 to 12:13 he says in verse 22 The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That must indicates that it is God's preordained purpose that Jesus would die and rise again. But for the the disciples... A suffering Messiah was simply inconceivable. Neither could they imagine following in those footsteps. That's not what they signed up for. For them, being Jesus' inner circle meant power, prestige, and authority. These guys were dreaming of having government positions in the Messiah's kingdom. And so you could imagine their dismay when Jesus goes on in verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, the self-denial part we get, and it's never fun. But taking up our cross daily has kind of lost its offense. I mean, we've got crosses decorating our building, our auditorium, We've got crosses on our Bibles. Some of us are wearing crosses. It's so familiar, it's no longer shocking. In our day, it's like wearing an AR-15. If you don't know what an AR-15 is, it's, a, it's an assault weapon. It's, an, it's a gun. Or a gas chamber on your neck. James Edwards points out, in the first century... The cross was not a mere symbol or figure of speech, but a repugnant instrument of cruelty, pain, dehumanization and shame. The cross was the most visible and omnipresent aspect of Rome's terror apparatus, designed especially to punish criminals and quash slave rebellions in the most painful, protracted and public manner possible as a warning against rebellion. The cross was thus a symbol of absoluteness and totality, and it retains both senses as used by Jesus. In fact, it was never mentioned in polite society. The cross signified a total claim on life, a claim that daily must be accepted in the lives of Jesus' followers. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him take up his cross daily and come follow me. But if that's what it means, then why on earth would anybody want to follow Jesus? Why would anyone want to submit to his total claim on their life? Well, look at verse 24 to 26. Look at what Jesus has to say. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. In other words... Self-seeking and self-protection are dead ends. Taking up your cross to follow Jesus is the only proper way to live. And it may sound paradoxical, but it makes absolute perfect sense when you look at life from the perspective of eternity and when you recognize who Jesus is. He is the Son of God, the rightful King of the universe, whose glorious return will consummate the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about here. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And those who demonstrate their trust in Him by committing themselves to Him wholeheartedly will enjoy the inheritance that He has prepared. Those who reject Him will be damned forever. And so with eternity in mind, then it's a no-brainer. As Jim Elliot would put it, if you don't know who Jim Elliot was, he was a missionary who went to Peru to minister to the Aka Indians. And he was killed by those Aka Indians to, to whom he was seeking to share the gospel. He wrote, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Please understand, taking up our cross daily to follow Jesus is not gritting our teeth and following rules against our will. That's how a lot of people think following Jesus is about. I'll suck it up and I'll follow him no matter what and I, I won't enjoy myself. That's why some of them are so sour. I hope you understand. You are denying yourself in order to say yes to Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, who lovingly laid down his life for you. And you are entrusting your life to someone who loves you more than you could ever imagine, because he died for you. And who, in his infinite wisdom, knows what is best for you, because he designed you and you are taking control of your life away from somebody with a history of awful, regrettable decisions. Someone who is impulsive, self-centered, and immature with limited understanding of life and the world. And in case you didn't realize who I'm talking about, I'm talking about you and me. Look, this is really the choice that's going on here. However brilliant you are, to follow Jesus is to give up your life to somebody better. And denying yourself to follow Jesus means sacrifice and pain. That's implicit in the image of taking up our cross. Because somebody who's taken up the cross isn't coming back. Is heading to his death. But it also means being in relationship with Jesus. So it is also a joyful life. Because the friendship of Jesus transforms our distorted desires as his love grips us. One of my favorite novels is The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. It tells the story of a man unjustly imprisoned, a man named Edmond Dantes. And while in prison at the Chateau d'If, he meets a priest who is a polymath. And he spends 10 years with this priest, learning everything this priest knows. It's a friendship that transformed Edmond Dantes from, an ignor- from a simple sailor into a brilliant man. And that's what friendship with Jesus does. It transforms our distorted desires and his love reorients our disordered loves. So that we find pleasure in his delight. And as if that were not enough, the Spirit of God dwells in us and gives us the strength to obey and persevere in the face of suffering. And even the hurts we endure, the Spirit of God uses to draw us closer to Him so that we become more like Jesus. And then when Christ returns we will receive a reward that we do not deserve. It's a reward that Jesus secured for us. It's not something we earn. It's a gift. And so the question is really, why would we not take up our cross to follow Jesus? And Luke reassures us that taking up our cross to follow Jesus the Messiah is the only right course of action by showing us a glimpse of Jesus' glory. Look at verse 28 going down. Luke tells us, As Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Imagine that scene of Jesus in his glory. And of course, Peter. Peter, who said, you are the Christ of God, now puts his foot in his mouth yet again. And so God the Father says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is God the Father confirming Jesus' pronouncement that he is the suffering servant of the Lord. This is God the Father proclaiming Jesus to be his son, the Messiah. The prophet greater than Moses. That's why he tacks on, listen to him. He demands and deserves our obedience. In Jesus' conversation with Moses and Elijah about his departure... In the Greek, that's Exodus, indicates that his suffering in Jerusalem would accomplish a deliverance that is even greater than freeing the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Benjamin Glad says this, I I wish I could say it better, but he says it so well. The term departure is thick with layers of meaning. On the one hand, his departure certainly means his death the transformation of an earthly body to a heavenly one. But the term also contains overtones of a second exodus. Jesus' death and resurrection, his own personal exodus, are the climax of his redemptive act of delivering his people from the enslavement of sin and securing a place for them to dwell in the new creation. The exodus of the covenant community is not simply a deliverance from sin and the devil, it also entails Jesus leading his church to the new creational promised land. Friends, this is our hope. This is the second exodus that will be consummated when Christ returns. This is what all those who take up their cross to follow Jesus will gain. And later on, Peter reflects on on what he saw under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And he affirms that the transfiguration of Jesus is a foreshadowing of Jesus' glorious return. You find that in 2 Peter 1, 16-18. The point is, Jesus is worth more than anything we could ever give up. But here's the sad story part of this story the disciples were very slow to embrace jesus plan of action just imagine the scene peter james and john are on the mountaintop with jesus they've just seen this amazing sight they come down from the mountain and they find the other disciples frustrated because they are unable to cast out a demon From the heights of God's revelation, you see a revelation of humanity's failure. And Jesus says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how am I to bear with you? How long am I to bear with you and be with you? It's a comment on the people and it's also a rebuke to the disciples for their shallow faith. And then Jesus casts out the demon and he astonishes everybody with the majesty of God. But as the people are marveling, Jesus almost gives a buzzkill. He again prophesies his impending betrayal as if to say, guys, that's not the most important thing. He tells them, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. See, that's his most significant work. The cross is the ultimate demonstration of the majesty of God. But sadly, the disciples couldn't understand Jesus' words. We are told in verse 45, that God had hidden the meaning of him. They did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them by God so that they might not perceive it. And to make matters worse, they were afraid to ask Jesus about this saying. And you wonder, why would God conceal it from them? Well, you see the answer in verse 46 to verse 48. It was hidden from them because of the arrogance of their hearts. The disciples could not grasp the glory of Jesus' self-giving because they were full of self-glory. They defined greatness in self-centered terms. They were grasping for power and competing for supremacy. Notice verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. This after Jesus just said the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. It's like children fighting over their inheritance in front of their father who is in hospice. A suffering Messiah did not make sense in their prestige-seeking framework. So verse 47, Jesus took a child And put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. D.A. Carson comments, The disciples want to be close to Jesus because they esteem Jesus to be great and becoming greater. But Jesus says in effect, I want to see how you welcome a child. If you welcome a child, you're not intent on scrambling up a bureaucratic ladder to the top of officialdom. You're not burnishing your resume in order to become Secretary of State. Instead of sucking up to Jesus in order to be associated with someone who has power, they ought to be happy to receive a little child. Denying yourself to take up your cross and follow Jesus means humbling yourself. We take our cue from Jesus, who, being God, demonstrated His greatness by humbling Himself to become a human being so that He may die for wretched sinners like you and me. But unfortunately... Even with this rebuke, the disciples still don't get it. Look at John's answer in verse 49. Oh, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Can you imagine? (sighs) He's not our tribe. And their competitive insular attitude is pathetic because they just miserably failed to cast out a demon. This guy is doing it in the name of Jesus. Their self-absorption blinded them to that person's real allegiance to Jesus. But you know, I have to say, I, I find the disciples' folly very comforting. Because frankly, I see myself in their bumbling self-seeking. I see the church in their folly. And my comfort is that Jesus did not leave the disciples the way they are. Instead, he patiently transformed them from petty, self-seeking failures into faithful, courageous apostles who joyfully suffered for his sake. And that gives us hope, doesn't it? In the first place, Jesus came because we are all failures. None of us can measure up to the standard of Jesus. None of us can take up the cross and follow him the way we should. And that's why Jesus came. So that he may die and rise again for us. Because we need more than an example, don't we? We need a Savior. But here's the great thing. Because Jesus saved us, we can follow His example. Not because we're strong, but because He's given us new hearts. And His Spirit dwells in us. His Spirit is renovating our hearts by exposing our self-centeredness and driving us back to the cross of Jesus in repentance. And as Jesus' self-giving love restores and renews us, we are humbled further by His unfailing, unconditional love. And in being humbled, we desire even more to please Him. And so become more like him. And even though we fail more times than we can imagine, the great thing is that he's not going to give up on us. He is absolutely determined to finish the good work that he has begun in us. And that's our hope. That's our hope that motivates us to keep denying ourselves taking up our cross and following him to continually come to Jesus, God's suffering Messiah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. We thank you that before time began, you chose us Fully knowing that we are failures. We are rebels. We are people who thumb our noses at your authority. And yet you still chose to love us. And love us so much that you sent your Son who willingly humbled himself out of love for us. Choosing to love us so that he may lay down his life for us. We thank you that you've given us, that your spirit has opened our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus so that we are able to trust in you. And we thank you that you are daily at work in us so that we may experience and live out what it means to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. We thank you, Father, that despite our frequent failures, having committed yourself to us from eternity, you are determined to see the work through. So that for all eternity, when Christ returns, we will rejoice because we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But Father, in the here and now, we confess that we're so full of ourselves, we're so full of pride, we're so foolish in thinking we can run our lives on our own. But Father, we pray that your Spirit would point us yet again to the glory, the majesty, the beauty of King Jesus. Cause us to see again the infinite depths of his love. That his love might grip us so that we would live no longer for ourselves, but for him who for us died and rose again. We ask this not for ourselves, but for the glory and honor of your matchless name. For you are good and you have done us great good. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.